You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you all with us for this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, our topic today is the Russian war on Ukraine and the European response. And I'm really pleased uh, to introduce our guest, uh, Ambassador Stavros Lambrinidis. Uh, welcome, Ambassador. Great to be with you. Thank you. Um, a, little, uh, a little comment for those who may not be familiar with uh, the ambassador's uh, background. Uh, Stavros Lambrinidis is the European Union ambassador to the United States. He is someone who has had a really remarkable career. He has been a Greek uh, government official and served as foreign minister uh, of Greece. He has been a member of the European Parliament, uh, including leading the delegation uh, in the EU Parliament for the Greek Social Democratic Party. He was the European Union's Special Representative for Human Rights. And since 2019, he's been EU Ambassador here in Washington. So uh, I, I think it's uh, not uh, an overstatement to say, uh, Ambassador, that your, your background really um, prepares you uniquely for the challenges you face today and it, including those we face internationally. And for that reason, we're really grateful to have you with us. Yes, indeed. And you, and you left out that I actually did study in the States and worked as a lawyer here in Washington. So that helps me perhaps also a little bit in, in ensuring that I can do my best to fortify the transatlantic alliance as we are facing those challenges together. Absolutely. So uh, what, what, I, what I wanted to start with is um, to ask you, what have, what have we learned from the Russian invasion of Ukraine about the European Union's ability to project political power? Well, we, we, we learned that that is actually possible because many people assumed that the European Union is a big bureaucratic institution somehow uh, that cannot make decisions, or if it can, it takes too late. Uh, all it likes to do is regulate. Uh, it has really no real force or power in foreign affairs or in defense. Uh, and it cannot also take decisions that sometimes can also hurt its interests if broader interests uh, for the EU and the world are at stake. And all these myths to the extent that anyone held them, were, were shot down with this crisis. The speed uh, and most important, the unity with which we, we responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine were unprecedented. Uh, I mentioned the unity because uh, in our case, as opposed to the US case, you need a unanimous decision of 27 heads of state and government or member states to be able to impose any sanction against anyone. In the US, you need a president to, to, sign, a, to, to sign a paper. Uh, and there's no question in my mind that, uh, that uh, Mr. Putin was uh, counted on, hoping, expecting that at least one of our member states, maybe two, uh, would be too concerned about sanctioning Russia in this case because they are reliant too much on Russian gas uh, or because of other reasons. And he awoke to a very different reality and a very unpleasant one for him. Uh, but the military unity of the EU in this case as well um, uh, unfolded itself. Um, we have already provided more than a billion dollars worth of financing to our member states to give lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine. These weapons in the country, as we speak, are in the hands of heroic Ukrainian fighters, and those heroic fighters are actually resisting the Russian uh, uh, onslaught. Um, and um, and we're discussing now for the commitment of even uh, more such financing. Um, 
uh, to, uh, to people. Um, when it comes to our political strength and will, um, you may have seen also uh, the immediate reaction of Europe when it came to the, uh, uh, to the floods of, uh, of people, mostly women, children, um, being forced to leave Ukraine uh, to escape the brutality of Putin against civilians. Four million plus of those Ukrainians came in only one month, only one month in the European Union, and they have all found um, uh, both uh, shelter and schooling for the children and health care for everyone and the right to work under a te temporary protection order that we issued for them uh, in all member states. But I do have to remind people here who are listening, you know, um, that little girl in Poland uh, or in uh, Italy uh, that is going now to a school there, not speaking the language, grateful she and her mother for having found a protection and second family. She did not choose to go to Italy or to Poland or anywhere else. That is on Putin. He forced her to go out because what she wants is to be back to her town, to her school with her friends and her teachers. And what we are doing as Europeans right now is to ensure that that girl, that mother, that father um, will have the chance to do so, I hope very soon, to a peaceful, independent Ukraine. Ambassador, um, I want to ask one follow-up, and uh, and that is, you talked about the, the 1 billion uh, euros, I believe, in financing for uh, providing arms uh, to, to Ukraine. Um, do you have any uh, detail or do, are you tracking how much of that has already arrived in Ukraine and how much of that is in process? Of course, there's been, a, there's been really a, a remarkable outpouring of support for Ukraine, but it's sometimes hard to tell how much of that is prospective and how much of it has been delivered. Uh, the vast majority of it is already delivered. Uh, some of it is still coming in and that also includes American. Uh, equivalent uh, equivalent aid right uh, it is um, I mean given uh, that shouldn't surprise anyone listening uh, given the massive amounts of, uh, of Russian military um, uh, buildup uh, around Ukraine initially and in Ukraine now uh, you couldn't have imagined the Ukrainians being able to uh, so effectively fight back up to this point uh, had they not had already in their hands that kind of aid yeah um, and you know, as someone who is at the at the center of the relationship between the United States and the European Union on a daily basis, what's your assessment? Has this crisis changed the relationship between the U.S. and the EU in a permanent way, or is this uh, more a, an, an example of you know extraordinary exertion during a crisis, uh, but that may not be felt uh, years from now? It's a very good question. I, I cannot predict what will happen in this side of the, of the Atlantic, um, uh, but, uh, but I can tell you for a fact uh, that um, the present administration, the Biden administration, with its emphasis on, um, on safeguarding and increasing American security as well through alliances, um, has in this particular case proven through the cooperation with the European Union uh, that this alliance, the transatlantic alliance, is indispensable. We knew this already when it came to the economy, and this, of course, will not change. Uh, the uh, uh, almost 40% uh, uh, of the world's uh, GDP is the American and the European economy together. 
uh, American companies make more uh, profits in Europe than anywhere else in the world. Investments in this country come more from Europe than anywhere else in the world, creating close to 15 million jobs across the Atlantic. Um, that relationship, uh, that strength of the transatlantic alliance for the daily lives of our people, for uh, you know, uh, money in our pockets, food on our tables, uh, workers having jobs, companies flourishing and innovating, that's there. But the security element, I think, has come into focus uh, much more now with the Russian uh, invasion. And it's not just the funding, uh, the EU funding that, that is enabling those weapons to get on the ground. It's also the importance of NATO, where not every EU member state is a member, but the vast majority are. Uh, and also uh, in this context, the European decision uh, just two weeks ago, uh, through the first time joint uh, defense and security strategy that we issued, all 27 countries, we call it the strategic compass, uh, our decision to um, together invest more in military capabilities, uh, together invest more uh, in security itself, together invest more in partnerships. This is going to be the biggest boost for NATO, uh, in addition to European security itself, in cases where NATO uh, is not interested or does not have jurisdiction to intervene, such as in some instances of, of real dangers in Africa, let's say. But this is the biggest support to NATO because, in fact, in Greece, the country I know best, uh, you do not have a Greek army on the one hand and then a Greek NATO army on the other hand, or a French army and then a French NATO army, it's, the, it's one and the same army. And if we manage to um, decrease the um, inefficiency with which we have been spending on defense uh, and to increase uh, our cooperation uh, innovation uh, capacities um, and, um, and um, uh, capability creation, uh, we will make NATO as well uh, a much stronger alliance. Ambassador, one looming question is how to handle energy imports from Russia. Is the EU ready to stop all imports of oil and gas from Russia? And if not, what needs to happen first that would facilitate such an import stop? Well, we already uh, decided yesterday, all 27, to stop all imports of coal. Uh, that's about uh, $8 billion worth, about a quarter of what Russia exports around the world. Uh, and uh, we have said that every option is really on the table. Um, keep in mind a couple of realities for, uh, for many, many decades, um, also because you cannot defy gravity. I mean, Europe and uh, Russia are uh, neighboring um, areas. Uh, a big uh, chunk of our um, uh, fossil fuel imports have come from Russia, oil and, uh, and gas in particular. Um, you cannot just turn off the tap there. Uh, but we have done something more important than, than, than turning off the tap there. We have already announced a decision to fully decouple, fully decouple from all Russia, Russian oil and gas imports in five years time. And in this year alone, uh, to aim to decouple by two thirds. And that decoupling is going to happen in um, three different ways. The, uh, the first way is that we will create the strategic autonomy that we need from Russian gas and oil by importing it from other peaceful allied sources. When President Biden was in 
uh, Brussels uh, last week. He met with President von der Leyen and they announced uh, that from the US alone, they're gonna be about 15 billion more BCMs, the so-called of gas coming in this year, about 50 billion every year in the years after that. 50 billion BCMs is already one third of what we are importing from Russia. Now, at the same time, we will front load our renewable energy um, infrastructure and uh, production and consumption. And that is going to make a huge difference both this year and in future years because our aim, our goal is to be able by 2050 to be entirely independent from fossil fuels. Again, for an American audience, you must understand this is uh, renewable energy for Europe is our homegrown energy. We do not have, you know, major gas fields or, uh, or oil fields and stuff like that. We have some, but not major. So we have been for years uh, at the forefront, uh, the champions of innovating and investing in these technologies. And the third thing that we are going to be doing immediately is also accelerating electrification of transport and buildings, uh, which is to say energy efficiency. Many people do not know. It sounds a little bit to people who don't follow those things as something uh, sort of pie in the sky to mention. Uh, you know, 30% of gas emissions in Europe, and I bet you it's a similar number here in the US, come from buildings today as we speak, from buildings alone. If you turn those buildings into energy efficient buildings, into carbon neutral buildings, you, you decrease your, your, your need for fossil fuels dramatically, and you also dramatically reduce the carbon footprint of, of those buildings. Because let us not forget, as we are trying to get more gas right now, especially LNG from other sources around the world, and we are doing it very successfully to decouple from Russia, those kinds of fuels have to be transitional, both in the US economy and in the EU economy. Uh, the big, the existential threat of climate change has not gone away. If anything, has gotten worse after Russia's invasion. And we have to make sure uh, for, uh, for us, for our people, uh, for their prosperity and their security in the future, uh, that we do move uh, on that transition as we are decoupling from Russian uh, fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. You pointed out the, the, the question of gravity and geography, and, and it's, it's certainly true. I, there's also some dissatisfaction, it seems, with the pace of the energy decoupling with Russia. I noticed yesterday the European Parliament, for example, in a non-binding vote, but nevertheless a rather overwhelming one, um, the European Parliament voted uh, to you know, for an immediate ban, not just on coal, which uh, went into effect uh, or is going into effect, uh, but also on gas and oil. Um, do you think that pressure... Um, is going to accelerate these plans that you've talked about? Look, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, uh, we have said, um, uh, we should say the European Commission, the European Council, um, that uh, every option is on the table. It's not off the table. Uh, so um, I am sure there are discussions as we speak on these issues. There are, the discussions are slightly more difficult when it comes to gas because 40% of all our gas um, imports are coming from Russia today. And some of the member states rely on that gas for much more than 40%, 60%, 80%. So um, it goes without saying, you cannot just turn off the tap there. You wanna make sure that sanctions hurt 
Russia more than they hurt Europe. Although Europe uh, most certainly is hurting by the sanctions it's already imposed. And that is absolutely fine. We knew and we know we're gonna take a major hit, a much bigger hit in fact, than the hit uh, experienced uh, in the United States. Uh, and again, that makes sense. Proximity has made our trade and investment with Russia almost 10 times bigger than the one, um, than the one that, uh, that the United States has. Uh, to give you just an example, yesterday in our sanctions, we did announce, among other things, a newer sanctions, a, a fifth wave of sanctions that will be blocking about 10 billion euros worth of exports of high-tech goods to Russia. Now, that is the total um, value of U.S. exports to Russia, uh, to give you that sense. So these are very, very important decisions. Um, but, and so when it comes to, uh, to oil and gas, everything is on the table. Um, but we're also very cognizant of the importance of ensuring uh, that we do not um, bring a total immediate shock to some of the member states. And therefore, the importance of ensuring that we decouple uh, very fast, uh, if not tomorrow, uh, from all our needs from Russia gas, which is going to be a much bigger devastation to Russia uh, than anything else that we do today. Ambassador, um, looking again at the transatlantic relationship, uh, in the middle of next month in France, the US and the EU will hold the second uh, meeting of their Trade and Technology Council. How much do you think Russia's invasion of Ukraine will shift the focus um, of the uh, TTC when the ministers meet? Or do you think that issues relating to China, which were, if not uh, named that way, were certainly in the background of the first meeting in Pittsburgh, will continue to top the agenda? So, look, the, the challenges that the EU and the US are discussing at the Trade Technology Council are fundamentally universal. So let me give you an example here. The the national security challenges that we are discussing in the uh, export controls and the foreign direct investment screening um, uh, context, they, you know, frankly, they apply equally to Russia as they do to China, right? Uh, now, at the same time, there's no question that the, the, the war has put additional pressure uh, on already stressed supply chains and supply chains, um, including the semiconductors, but virtually everything else are a major topic of the discussions in, uh, in the Trade Technology Council, uh, including what we discussed um, in Pittsburgh, so, um, which was the first meeting of that, of that council back in September. So um, these are universal challenges. Now, um, also when it comes to the Trade Technology Council, uh, let me just say that I have no doubt in my mind that the fact that we kicked it off in September, so way before the Russian invasion, uh, and we decided on it in June 2021 at the EU-US-Russia summit in Brussels, uh, EU-US uh, summit in Brussels, so Brussels, apologies. Um, the, um, there's no question of the cooperation that we built there, American and European policymakers at all levels, at the highest levels of secretaries and commissioners to the working levels, that that success um, intensified and made it very, very easy compared to any other time uh, to impose the sanctions that we did on Russia, including on export controls that we announced from, from day one, um, you know, on, on, uh, on high-tech equipment and semiconductors to Russia. Um, that um, confidence that was built between European and American policymakers, the trust 
that was built, the personal relationships that were built, um, and uh, frankly, also the topics that were already discussed uh, were big. Now, finally, let me say, um, we have set up the Trade Technology Council to be a very flexible instrument. We have 10 working groups uh, virtually on every topic. Uh, but I would not be surprised if in May, uh, mid-May, when the second uh, meeting of the principals will take place in France, if issues um, that have come out of the Russian invasion, such as, uh, frankly, global food security, which is a very big issue, uh, or energy itself, um, that uh, those may, uh, may, be, uh, uh, may also be discussed. And finally, of course, we discussed a number of issues, uh, including the conclusions of our first meeting back in, uh, in September. Uh, artificial intelligence, uh, who sets the standards? This is something that focuses on every uh, major producer who does not share um, you know, universal values of human rights uh, and, uh, and uh, true democracy. Um, and the focus there, of course, is China, um, who is um, using face recognition and voice recognition and all these cameras in places like Xinjiang explicitly to repress people. So, look, when we export our goods in our containers, in those containers, we also export our values. I've very often said this. You cannot see those values in those containers. You can see just the goods, but the values are there. If I export a camera that I am using in order to repress and I take it to other countries to give them the chance then, because I would certainly place no limit on their use to repress as well, I'm exporting repressive values. But if I export goods and services uh, that are produced in the context of an open free market economy, not a, a state huge footprint economy, subsidized economy, that are produced on the basis of respecting labor standards, uh, not violating uh, labor rights. That are produced on the basis of protecting the environment, not destroying it to produce something faster and cheaper. These are values too. And Americans and Europeans that trade in the technology council are having the chance to discuss on AI and every other such topic, how it is that we could set together the world standards because we are the biggest world innovators and the biggest economic artery of this world. And if we agree on those standards, we have a very good chance to make sure that they become universal. Ambassador, if I could follow up on that. Uh, one of the uh, working groups of the TTC is focused on global trade challenges. And I think it's fair to say that during the Trump years, trade policy was an area where there were some transatlantic tensions. Um, how, how, do you, how do you assess the Biden administration's approach to trade and trade policy with the EU. Um, he's, the administration has resolved a number of those tensions, such as the, the national security tariffs on steel imports. Uh, but for example, we heard last week some concerns in Congress that the White House doesn't have really a market opening agenda. Do you think the US and the EU should go further and revive the transatlantic trade investment partnership, which I saw that the German finance minister uh, raised uh, last month? No, I think I, I think uh, that the the TTIP is not going to be revived, and I think that everyone has made that clear back in Europe. There's no appetite in Europe, and frankly, there's no appetite in the U.S. with some exceptions. And the Trade and Technology Council is not 
um, you know, a new TTIP from the back door. It is, however, a, a new, uh, supremely effective platform to address many issues uh, in the transatlantic relationship uh, that could not only boost trade and investment between us two, uh, but also, as I said, um, ensure a level playing field around the world. Now, when it comes to the trade relationship itself, you're absolutely right. The Biden administration came in with an entirely different uh, agenda and a very effective uh, one, especially as we're coming out of COVID, where the last thing that we needed were more illegal tariffs uh, as those placed by the previous U.S. administration against Europe on steel and aluminum for which we then had to reply with our own tariffs on US goods. And we're talking billions over billions of tariffs. That's not where our companies or our workers needed. So we did find a, um, a, um, a, a temporary solution to steel aluminum. Uh, and we did ground the Airbus Boeing dispute, which was another huge dispute affecting so many industries, not just the airline industry. Um, we have not fully resolved them yet. We have quite a, quite a bit of, of work ahead of us to do so. Um, but, um, but the actual tensions, the actual negative consequences of the tariffs, they're gone. They're gone. Now, um, when I say we have work ahead of us, take the issue of um, steel aluminum. So we have agreed that we're going to be negotiating together uh, a global uh, arrangement on sustainable steel and aluminum, that's what we call it, which would be an agreement to encourage a greener steel production around the world. Now, that ties in very well with the European Union's plan to impose a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is essentially a way of telling every company and country around the world that they cannot be, as we are forcing our companies to be reducing their carbon, carbon emissions in Europe, they cannot be unfairly competing against them uh, but most importantly, they cannot be importing carbon emissions that we are reducing because they continue to produce things by emitting them. Uh, and so they would have to use our new mechanism as an incentive. Uh, either they will have to pay you know, very high uh, tariffs at the border to compensate for that kind of um, uh, pollution, or they can instead use that money they would otherwise pay on tariffs to invest in their economies and their companies to make them more um, uh, you know, energy efficient and cleaner. And this would be to their advantage, of course, beyond anyone else's. So Americans and Europeans now are talking about a subset of this whole thing that we are talking about in Europe, just steel, just steel uh, but uh, that's gonna be a very interesting negotiation. Um, let me also say that we have um, the WTO, and the WTO, uh, we need to be talking Americans and Europeans more substantively, as far as I'm concerned, uh, together. Uh, WTO reform is essential, um, but we cannot continue simply identifying what we don't like about it. Uh, we have to sit down and find immediate solutions on what we like about it uh, and, uh, and make those changes. Because if you continue not having a dispute resolution mechanism, because the US is not appointing people to that mechanism, you have international trade, you'll still have it, but it will be international trade without a, a, a final referee. Now, you know what that means? That means potentially a, a, a wild, wild worst, uh, west, uh, you know, uh, trade world uh, in which the big countries impose their will on the weaker ones. That's gonna be 
tremendously difficult and unfair for many countries in Asia and Africa, Latin America, uh, who are not strong economies, but it also smacks in the economic sphere, very much like the jungle world that Russia is trying to impose on the rest of us in the defense security uh, diplomacy sphere. Because, you know, you know, have no doubt that what Russia is trying to do is not simply eliminate Ukraine from the map, which is obviously they've said they want to do this, but they are trying to eliminate the international peace order after the Second World War. They're trying to return to a world where guns and might make right. Uh, and they are trying to return to spheres of influence. They're trying to be revisionists in the worst, most dangerous sense of the world. And then, if that were to succeed, think of all the bullies around the world, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, who'd be more than happy to be using that new, uh, newfound uh, world order uh, to be threatening uh, or even invading their neighbors. So uh, in the economy, as well as in the international political diplomatic sphere, America and Europe built up a rule-based world. That is where existential interest lies against all those who want to have it otherwise. Yeah. And so we should be focusing to make that happen again. Last topic, uh, Ambassador. Um, what do you think, uh, what, where do you see the impact uh, of the new German government, which has a coalition that's never uh, existed at the federal level before, um, on the European Union and its priorities? Um, and maybe if you, uh, you know, we're, we're talking on Friday, April 8th, uh, a couple of days before the first round of the French presidential election, which people are watching closely, of course. Um, and so maybe your thoughts on the Franco-German relationship, which you know historically has been the, the motor of, uh, of political uh, progress and adaptation in the EU. Uh, how is that relationship uh, likely to change in your perspective? So... I'm, I'm betting that's something that Putin also wasn't expecting. Uh, the new coalition government in Germany has, uh, has uh, already, in a couple of months, uh, instituted a, uh, a sea change of policy in Germany. Uh, from um, the energy side, um, uh, you know, um, freezing uh, Nord Stream 2, um, announcing um, massive new investments itself, including in uh, renewable energies, uh, in the defense side, uh, announcing a um, hundred billion uh, increase in its own defense expenditures uh, in only the next year, um, uh, providing uh, weapons uh, to uh, Ukraine as they fight things that historically, let's not forget Germany's um, you know, role in the Second World War. Historically, uh, it had decided uh, that it would uh, not do, not do, uh, probably even never do. Uh, so, um, what I do see there uh, is um, a major uh, swift shift in, in, uh, in, in Germany with the new uh, government coalition uh, that is bolstering uh, the transatlantic partnership, bolstering uh, Europe's uh, own capabilities in those uh, fields and, uh, and uh, certainly bolstering Ukraine. Um, now, when it comes to the French election, uh, I, I, it goes without saying I would not venture any um, uh, commentary or prediction. But I will say um, that we are in a different world in today's EU than we were when it was first created. 
the Franco-German alliance remains uh, tremendously um, important uh, for the European Union, the biggest economies, the historical founding countries. Um, but it's different in that we have 27 countries. And here's what I mean by this. Remember, the EU was created after the Second World War. It was a political, not an economic um, necessity at the time. Um, coming out of the fact that Europeans themselves in their own hands had killed each other and had also committed what is probably the worst human rights violation of, uh, of uh, many centuries, the Holocaust. And we decided coming out of that war that we would never ever as Europeans allow ourselves either the desire or the ability to inflict such horrors on ourselves or on others around the world. And so the first thing that we did back then is we created what was called the, uh, the coal and steel community. And many people say, hey, wait a second, that's, that sounds economic to me. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's not. I mean, coal and steel is exactly what was needed to build weapons. And what France, Germany, and the other founding members of, of, of Europe decided back then was that the first thing they would do is they would set under collective control the, uh, those resources that could be used to create the weapons of destruction. It was a deeply political decision. And then the EU expanded over the decades and now it is the most peaceful and most prosperous, uh, biggest open free market in the world of 450 million uh, citizens uh, and, uh, and consumers. And that's because now we are 27 member states, uh, including many countries that with many different histories, uh, countries that came in uh, former Soviet, uh, Soviet Union um, occupied countries, for example, uh, countries in the South that used to have dictatorships, uh, Portugal, Spain, Greece, um, uh, other countries. Um, so today, today, if you were to ask me, I would tell you that the motor for the EU is its unity, its capacity to be able to be unified as a much bigger, more, uh, more numerous, um, you know, uh, confederation of countries um, on the big challenges of our time, from battling climate change and boosting our economies for generations to come uh, through innovation and investment in clean technologies, through investment in, in tech, especially high tech, uh, while ensuring that the values that we bake into that technology for us and the rest of the world are human-centric values that respect human dignity, uh, to um, our decision uh, to work together more in foreign policy and defense, as I mentioned before, that is what the motor of the EU is, with France and Germany, of course, always major, major countries, as they have proven France today, uh, holding the rotating EU presidency, uh, and uh, pushing forth so many important European files. And last year, Germany holding the rotating EU presidency doing the same. Mm -hmm. Do you have any concerns, Ambassador, about the bipartisan support in the United States for a strong transatlantic relationship? You know what? I don't. I, I really don't. Um, I did not before, uh, even during difficult political years where um, where, uh, you know, uh, the, maybe there was a president uh, who was uh, uh, terming Europe as an enemy. Um, there was not a single meeting I had with senior Republicans or, or Democrats, um, or even not that senior ones, 
uh, in which I wasn't told uh, that uh, there is a deep belief in the indispensability of this relationship for U.S. interests, for U.S. interests, economic interests and security interests. And as I said, now with Russia, we see both uh, mm -hmm. in practice uh, being proven to be true. Um, I would say that um, also the emergence of China uh, as a major competitor of uh, both the U.S. and the European Union uh, has highlighted in the political system in the United States the uh, the um, unshake, unshaken importance of uh, working together with the European Union. China is um, above all else uh, a very dangerous economic and unfair competitor, both for U.S. companies and for EU companies, and therefore, because in our containers we put our values as well, uh, in the world as well, uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative and the, uh, and the investments it does, and in several cases, the investment uh, traps that it places in other countries, uh, but in the process, crowding out the possibility and the ability of our companies to compete and take those infrastructure investments away. Um, and again, there, if you put the collective strength of the European and the American economies together, um, China can't even come close to competing. So as we speak today, uh, we are looking at how to combine our own initiatives, your Build Back Better World initiative, and our Global Gateway initiative, initiatives for global infrastructure, to ensure that we identify um, both investments around the world that absolutely cannot fall in the wrong hands, but also the instruments to support our companies to be able to reduce their risk uh, and, and be competitive in bidding for those investments. Those things, to the extent to some people listening to us, they sound too much in the weeds. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But the fact of the matter is that it is that kind of ants work in politics that when done well, creates the seismic changes that you need to go from an autocratic threat to a democratic hope. Mm -hmm. And this is precisely what we're working on together today, uh, both sides of the island, the states, and frankly, virtually every European Union, European Parliament political party, we have more than two uh, in the European Parliament, virtually everyone from the right to the left. Well, a, uh, a, a clear um, uh, assessment of the things at stake in the transatlantic relationship um, and a ringing endorsement uh, of that partnership. Uh, Ambassador Lambernidis, uh, I want to thank you for spending this time with us. And uh, on behalf of our listeners, thank you as well. Um, we, we look forward to, uh, to working to strengthen uh, that partnership and uh, really appreciate your insights today. Thank you for having me. A great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.